Welcome, everybody, to uh, the first installment of the review panel for 2010 at the National Academy Museum. I am Marshall Price, the curator of modern and contemporary art, and it's wonderful to see so many faces in the crowd this evening. Um, I'm sorry that it's a little cramped, but it's a testament to the popularity of the review panel, so um, that's good. <laughs> um, as you can see, uh, we are between exhibitions at the moment, and um, just to let you know that the next exhibition that will be opening here at the Academy is the 185th Annual and Invitational of Contemporary American Art. The opening is February 16th. It's a Tuesday evening, so I hope you all can make it. Um, and. If you would like to stay uh, informed of what's going on here at the Academy, you can find us on Facebook. So um, please look us up, uh, become a fan, and you'll get all of our announcements. So uh, with that being said, I'd like to introduce the moderator of the review panel, David Cohen, who is the editor of artcritical.com, as well as the director of the gallery at the New York Studio School. So with that, I'm going to hand it over to David and the panel. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to everybody here at the National Academy, the president, the executive director, and particularly to the new staff members who handle the logistics and, and make this event possible. I single out for thanks uh, Linda Feaster and uh, Camille Ortiz. Um, and also thank... Um, to guests who make this technically possible for us, Graham White, our recording engineer, who makes it possible for us to podcast these events to an even larger and um, uh, equally eager audience uh, on the web at artcritical.com slash review panel. And also to thank James Calm, uh, who is the uh, videographer who produces the uh, wonderful short um, video introduction uh, to the four shows that we're going to review this evening. Um, let me introduce my guests this evening. They are, from your right, Omud Mario Navis, who is art critic for uh, City Arts and The New Criterion, and whose writings we had a decade to read at the New York Observer. He is also... Uh, and, uh, or perhaps one should say primarily, a visual artist himself, best known for his paintings and collage, which are exhibited at Elizabeth Harris Gallery. Joan Waltermatt is also an artist, represented across the nation by numerous galleries, and um, she is assistant professor at the Cooper Union School of Architecture, and she is also editor-at-large at the Brooklyn Rail. And the Brooklyn Rail is doing very well this evening, uh, doing very well most days, but is doing very well this evening here at the review panel because its uh, arts editor, John Yao, is with us. John, of course, is a distinguished uh, art critic and um, poet uh, as, and uh, is also professor at um, the uh, Mason School of Arts at Rutgers University. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your distinguished panel.
Please put your hands up if you're new at the review panel. This is your first panel. Fantastic. Well, that warrants a, a brief mention then of how we play this game. Uh, we, as I mentioned in relation to James Calm, will show a little video in a moment, uh, which is a, a walkthrough of the four exhibitions that hopefully uh, some of us have been to see. Uh, put your hands up again if you've been to two or more of the exhibitions that we're talking about. <laughs> well, the audience might be better qualified than the panel, uh, but uh, I think perhaps it was assumed that the panel had done their homework. You will judge that for yourselves in the course of the evening. So we will see our little video, discuss our four shows, and then at the end, it'll be time for the audience to let off some steam, share their views, and probe us if we have failed in what we're supposed to be doing. So, um, perhaps the panelists would like to step aside while we look at the video.
Excellent. Thank you very much indeed. So here we are in an institution that was once called the National Academy of Design, which, of course, confused people in this uh, Philistine age. And people would phone up this institution and ask if they had any teapots or uh, if they uh, uh, could help with, graphi- with, 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 with finding a good typographer. Of course, disegno was the, uh, the word in the, the Italian concept word for, for drawing, and so to the august academicians who founded this institution, they called it the National Academy of Design because they believe so much in drawing, and drawing being something somehow distinct from, maybe superior to colour in the sort of hierarchy of values. Just a thought that occurs to me, looking at Francis Barth's exhibition, uh, uh, works whose scale and sumptuous colour betoken um, some allegiance on the part of an artist who first came of age some years ago, uh, when a certain kind of modernist abstraction held sway, and yet somebody in whose work strange, quite intimate marks seem to occur. Joan, tell us what you made of the relationship between line and colour in, in the work of uh, Francis Barth. Oh, it sounds like a test question. Well, today, it's not but... a... Okay, it is. <laughs> Joan has only been on the review panel three times, and if she's going to come back a fourth time, we have to give her a little test. Okay, all right. Well, um, Francis Barth, you know, I think it's a very interesting um, relationship there. And just to go back to the Italians, they had the belief that either design was going to triumph or color was going to triumph but one of those either color or design would dominate the reading of the painting and I think in Francis Barth's work there's a very interesting back and forth and balance that she she's able to achieve between what the structural components of the painting are which is you know how she lays it out where where it goes back where it goes forward where you see those buildings and then what the color, how the color interacts with those structural decisions that she's made about her composition. And um, it's, it's, 
it seems to me like something that's set up really in dialogue with that Italian notion. Yeah. Mario, did you get the feeling that, uh, that the line signified uh, an intended meaning for the work, or was it just another means to make the work happen in, a, in an abstract way? You know, the, the whole dialogue between line and, 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 and disegno um, doesn't occur to me in the least in, in, in Francis Barth's work. I, what I find fascinating about her work, and I've been a fan, kind of not a cautious fan, but a puzzled fan for many years, because I, I find her paintings frustrating, and that's kind of one of the things that's pleasing about them. And what is, you know, I look at them structurally in terms of their palette. They're very incredibly sophisticated, yet there's a certain real haplessness to how she applies paint, which I, I find kind of endearing. There's this certain clumsiness, which I, I find fascinating, that kind of incredibly intellectual that rigor that exists in the, in the paintings, and, and then kind of this kind of fudgy way of laying down paint. And it, it just, it, it, it's fascinating to me. And, and you know, as I look at the paintings, it was interesting to look at the drawings in the back where the video was, was featured. Um, in terms of drawing, you know, certainly these perspectival studies of architecture I thought were very well done. And you wouldn't necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily think she were capable of that, just looking at the paintings. So there's all sorts of kind of interesting way she skews perspective hmm. within, uh, within the uh, canvases anyway. Okay, rather than taking the tack of, of line to color, which might be, as Mario seems to suggest, an exhausted dichotomy in relation to Francis Barth at least, would you at least say, John, that there's, there's some, some very conscious and, and uh, effective kind of play of scale in this work? In her best work, uh, everything seems to fit together and you can't quite take it apart. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then there's others where I feel like I can extract something from it and read it. And I'm not always sure that works, like, oh, that's a this and that's a that. I like the paintings, and there's a number of them where you can't figure out how it fits together or how to take it apart. And there's mm -hmm. one small one called Slate and Blue that really struck me. And then the one at the corners I really liked because there's no horizon line. And you felt like it was all related, but you couldn't figure out how. And you could sort of take it apart, but it wouldn't make sense to take it apart. So I think one of the things it did, I wouldn't say annoy me. That's not the right word, but it may be not as interested as when the horizon line seemed too obviously a horizon line <laughs> in the paintings. There's others where that's not there and something else happens and the space is interesting in those and that was just one of the thoughts I had. I mean, I had mm. more, but yeah. I'll leave it at that. For, for the moment, yes, thank you. So, um, Joan, further thoughts or can I risk another question? Um, what, what really fascinated me about those paintings was how a little I'll just take off from what Mario said about the way they're painted like how simply they're painted although I I have a different sense of the stroke I have a sense of it being rooted in a eastern calligraphic mm -hmm. tradition and so that sort of kind of offhandedness I feel is very um evolved an evolved way of just 
casually and with detachment putting the paint down so it's not too willful and it's not too haphazard. But what, what really intrigued me about her work was this feeling that um, there were two views that were being melded, um, knowing that she lives in New Jersey and commutes from there. I had this sense when I was looking at those paintings that it's always about this moving in and out of New Jersey and the river and this landscape that, that you know has to be a daily experience for her living where she lives. And then what, what she brings together with that is something that I, I would say comes from a, a, what I would take from Bergson, which is how much of what we see out there is a factor of what we know. So she's looking at the river and she knows like all kinds of scientific information about it, about the shores, about there's always these little windows in there with these kind of techno views. So like John was saying, in the, in the best ones you can't take it apart. In the best ones she melds what she sees that's out there with what she knows about what's out there. And when that becomes seamless, it's an incredible thing. Do, do we feel, though, that um, because we're hearing uh, accurately, I, I know, uh, information, ideas about, um, we're, we're hearing the informational underpinnings to her conception, um, but at the same time, they're very sensuous objects. They could work to somebody who hasn't read Karen Wilkins' eloquent catalogue essay or hasn't found out, as, as we seem to know and be able to intuit from the works, of, of the artist's interests in, say, uh, Chinese calligraphy or um, uh, geology. Um, Mario, do you, do, you, do you have a sense sometimes that... Do, do you have a sense of them working in a purely sensual, intuitive kind of way, or do you feel that um, they're energised in some way by um, uh, the other interests, the, 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 the conception of the world that the artist has? Well, certainly that's part of it. I, I find that the, the geological or scientific aspect of the paintings, which has been there for as long as I've seen them anyway, um, kind of fascinating. But it, 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 again, I, 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 you know, I hate to dwell on it, but it's just, it, you say sensuous. Mm. Deep saturated of, color, for instance. Well, I don't, I don't know if the paintings are sensuous. They're very dry to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, 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 you know, I get the, the kind of the influence of kind of Asian art in terms of the palette, in terms of the scale, in terms of the, the way she's affecting the space, and that's one of the things that really intrigues me about the work. But um, I don't know if I'm answering your question at all. No, but you're raising a very uh, good one that the rest of us have to. I mean, perhaps it's the thing to settle first: is um, um, are the are these works prickly and difficult, or are these works uh, sensuous and gem-like? Um, I, I kind of vote for the latter with uh, a hint of the former, but um, Mario seems to be saying, veering in the other direction. Can, can, we, can we reduce it to something as crude and personal and, and um, subjective as this? Are the I panelists? Hope not. I hope not. <laughs> not, reduce it, not reduce it in the final analysis, but what's your first feeling when you look at a painting of, of Francis Bath? Is it, uh, the paintings I like the most are the ones that I didn't know what I was looking at. Right. It's like mm-hmm. I look at them and say, what the hell is she doing? And, it's, and the ones uh, that kept my eyes busy. <laughs> that I can't, and then I would start to see them more and more as I looked. The play between two-dimension and three-dimension, mm-hmm. 
where something's flat up against the picture plane, and then, you know, a little further down, it's pushed it back, and the play between that. And then you feel like, that makes sense, but why does it make sense? Right. Then I'm just, then I'm stuck in the looking and thinking, but when I'm looking and think, and, and somehow it's like, it seems contrived or willed into being, I feel less interested. Mm -hmm. So that would be the one place that I got to. Uh, I don't think of them as sensual or prickly. I, what I liked about the color was that it seemed both natural and unnatural. Mm. And it seemed like the world, I mean, it is based on observation and yet somehow it seems completely artificial. Synthetic, yes. There's a, and there's I a like that funny not knowing where to stand on that, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. and I, that, that was a good place to be. What do you make of her color? Is it, as some have suggested, kind of no name and chemical? Or is, it, is, is the whole notion of no name color just an abnegation of the critic's or the, the viewer's job to, to find the name? I find it really playful, and I have the sense that while she's making those paintings, she's really having a good time in her studio, and the color strikes me as being very off the cuff and not calculated in a way, and I, I think that serves her well. Hmm. Can I just, two people I thought of that haven't been mentioned that I know that are in everything I've read is De Curico, and Diebenkorn. But it seemed to me mm -hmm. that she gets this kind of vast space going mm -hmm. back that's very de Curico. I mean, not de Curico-esque, but somehow related to it. And then the way she takes the observed world and turns it into something abstract seems to be related to Diebenkorn. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is you can mention those two but she doesn't suffer from the mentioning because she's not derivative of them at all. That's really beautiful, John. Yeah, I like the. I particularly like both of those um, analogies, but for very different reasons. The the, the, the Diebenkorn one, because I'm thinking of his Ocean Park series, right. where you have an oceanic experience. No pun intended on the name of his area, but um, at the same time, you still get that awkward, tense meeting of of line. Mm -hmm. And um, Diebenkorn really stands out from, I mean, both as a, uh, in, in his yo-yoing career back and forth between abstraction and figuration and also within his abstraction mm -hmm. from uh, resisting any, any idea of the, the, the field or right. the all-overness. Um, De Chirico, uh, Mario, is, another, is, is, an, is an interesting analogy to me for a different reason, and that is, um, I mean, I love De Chirico, um, but the problem, quote-unquote, for de Chirico within a sort of modernist way of looking at things is that th these really are pictures, not paintings. Um, is, and does that possibly have any bearings on um, Francis Bath? I mean, you, I know that the rest of the panel is resisting this tension between line and color that I'm suggesting and also um, the issues of scale. But the kind of marks made um, often pull one back from a sense of just getting, letting the eye get lost in it and forcing the brain to kind of cognate, try to read. Um, is, is that, does that resonate with de Chirico? Well, I think what saves de Chirico's best paintings from being just 
pictures, as you say, has to do with the light. Um, that you, you'll have this kind of autumnal, kind of glowing light that kind of suffuses through the paintings. And I, I think you have something similar, although probably not as sharp in Frances Barth with just kind of the palette she uses, this kind of very kind of rich and austere uh, kind of palette. So I, I, I'm getting, there's some kind of mood from it that would be de Chirico-esque, mm -hmm. comes from that. Mm. What are you getting at, David? I mean, there's something's irking you here. Well, uh, they are, um, she's, she's a painter. No, no, I, I feel that I, by, by asking these questions, I've, I've, I hope the, the audience uh, and you have got a sense of where I am. I, uh, I, in that these, are, these, these works um, are very alluring to me, um, but intriguing. Um, I mean, it's not a bad thing to be alluring and intriguing, intriguing at the same time. But really garble. <laughs> she certainly does both uh, in spades. But um, um, no, I'm not getting at anything more okay. than the saying that these are these these are um, teasing pictures. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they're not uh, mind game pictures. Uh, they they are um, they're rich, and one senses that uh, that the play with color and the relationship between color and line is not something is not a sort of conceptual game about um, picture making. Right. It, it, these are um, tensions that arise in the process of making and seeing the world and, and coming up with what to the artist is a satisfactory um, uh, record of how she sees the world. She doesn't have a unitary way of working her way through the painting. She does not, you say? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, that's why you keep bringing up line and Mm -hmm. color because it's not unitary it seems divided or at mm -hmm. odds with each other mm -hmm. and that's kind of interesting I think the other thing to go back to the light is in some of the paintings it seems like there's different kinds of light and it shifts from plane to plane mm -hmm. like there's one I think that's got this kind of I don't remember the title kind of blue around it and there's a kind of orange rectangle in the middle it was like sunset and evening if you want to reduce it to like mm -hmm. natural light, but it seemed like two kinds of light existing at the same time. And that seemed to me mm -hmm. interesting because in some of the character you can't tell the light seems to be coming from multiple sources. Right. You yeah. know? But but something that, that comes back to this idea of, of both drawing you into an oceanic experience and frustrating it right. is the unusual format of the majority and, and I think the strongest of these paintings, the, the very stark horizontality, because right. it's, it's wide enough to be um, like a colour field painting, but, I mean, of course, there's Kenneth Noland who has a similar shape, but at the same time, but for different reasons, but in, in, in Bath, the, um, uh, the, the, sh the shortness, the stoutness of these uh, uh, paintings prevents you from, as I say, getting lost in it. Narrative uh, Joan, I mean, does does the sense of the scroll, that, that, which relates to Asian art, as you mentioned, does the sense of it being too short to be able to lose yourself in it, so you have to read it instead of just being in it, does that um, does that relate to narrative? Um, what I was thinking about is how you never escape that these are constructed, that this is mm -hmm. a constructed world, and. Um, there's something about the way that they're painted, this disarmingly simple way that they're painted that goes against what comes out 
after you've spent some time with the work, and that is there seems to be an underlying agenda there of some sort or another. And, you know, I, I couldn't put my finger on it, and I don't think one could soundbite it. But it seems to be in conflict with the kind of philosophical um, position that comes across through the way the pieces are painted. And that, I don't know if that fits into a narrative category, but that's about as close as I could come to discussing a narrative category. And that is, and that was for me the weak point of the paintings was when I, when I felt that I couldn't escape that underlying agenda. And um, finally, panel, what do we make of the video, the animation? Is that, uh, that obviously brings in the notion of narrative. Um, does, is this a strength uh, in the show, or is this a, uh, an oddity that we could have done without? How, how, how do we, what do we make of the video? Uh, I like oddities, even if you can do without them. But at the same time, uh, I was intrigued by the architectural drawings, because they mm -hmm. seem sort of, it's going to sound negative, but generically precise. You know, there is no individuality or personality to them. So I, f I found that kind of curious. And then I, th I, I kind of got stuck on, did she get from that to that? Like, is that where they mm -hmm. began? Mm -hmm. And right. if they did, that was interesting. You know, oh, it really began as this house or, you know, there's that kind of funny billboard shape and one of you saw it and I thought, did that you know, migrate and transform in her studio. Um, that part intrigued me, but the, then I didn't, like the video was just like vanished after that. I didn't really think about it, mm. you know. Plus mm. it was so soft, mm. because obviously the people working there preferred to hear the woman walking around in the high heels. Because I also like practically had my right. ear up to it and then I couldn't hear what quite was what was being said. Well, the woman in the high heels will have them survive the recession uh, <laughs> in the way that the man listening to the video won't. Um, any, any other thoughts on the video, or shall we? Yeah. I, I found it to be a kind of interesting glimpse into how an artist prepares themselves or, or creates a research tool in another medium. Um, what really intrigued me about the video was looking at the kind of things that she looks at. It seems like everything she was drawing was such a non-image in a way, and I was really intrigued by her. Um, the way she created space out of a non-image and the relationship between image and space in her work, and that seemed like that exercise in the video was just like um, a way to fill herself up with experiences of and studies about that image mm -hmm. space relationship I, I have to agree with with John I just um, or, or, or along the same lines um, I, I did enjoy the the drawings um, more the video the video you know I you know, I think we're all thinking Francis Barth is kind of an oddity or very odd artist and the video is just kind of very generic mm -hmm. it's kind of art school video in a way and whereas the paintings are really so arresting because they're so puzzling. And I could figure out the video right away. Right. Did we figure out Marlo uh, Pasquale right away? Here we have uh, an, a photographer who um, branches into 
the realm of sculpture, or at least the third dimension. Um, John, what did you make well, of Marlowe Pasquale? Well, not really a photographer. Marlowe's an artist that uses found photographs, so mm -hmm. I, don't, I guess I'm being fussy. But not at all? It's a useful distinction. Photographer. That's someone who uses, and I believe she says she goes to flea markets, eBay, et cetera, et cetera, to get the images. Um, that didn't bother me. Um, I think what... Um, it seemed too witty at times. Like, it was, like, geared to something witty and sort of illustrational. And I thought that really what was missed out, like the finger pointing down and then that piece of metal and then going all the way across the room. And I thought, that's a lot to say something small. <laughs> um, so then I, I decided what were the, t what one work that I really like was the one that seems like the person's behind the window with the kind of metal mm. thing. And, and she seems like also could be like a, a scene from Psycho. I mean, it was, but then what seemed to me extraneous was the chair and the hat rack. Right. Like, mm -hmm. is the hat rack part of the two guys yelling at each other, which seemed to me like bad Richard Prince turned into like, I don't know, a child's cartoon or, or not a child's cowboy movie and, and the chair leaning against the wall. And then the other thing was there's that photograph of the woman sort of on her like one knee she seems pathetic in a way and she's this like bad amateur uh, cheesecake photograph and her eyes seem kind of disturbed and then it's on a table and there's a chair there I thought oh like this is the abject but it's not really abject enough I mean, the abjectness of that person has been aestheticized. And it sort of annoyed me. Like, how could you be truthful to the abjectness of that person who did whatever, you know, made money perhaps from that situation? Or, and I just felt like aestheticizing abjectness is sort of irksome. Well, then there's going to be a lot of artists in the dock, aren't there? From the Mannerists through Francis Bacon to Damien Hirst to Paul McCarthy, etc. Um, how uh, was it abject enough for you, Joan? I don't know. No, it's a cue to say whatever you would like to say on Marlowe uh, Pasquale. Oh, thank you, David. Um, well, I, it's very hard for me to say anything. I'm going to agree with John that that the photo of the woman that sort of seemed like a reference to Psycho against the shower mm -hmm. was the one where I could kind of enter into it and in my usual way have some relationship between the formal elements and what I was looking at. Like I like the relationship between the wet, sliding glass in the, in the actual surface of the plexiglass. I felt like that was, that seemed to be where a lot of energy was being put in this relationship between the illusion of an image and the material um, things that were surrounding it. And yet I found that just if I would get like critical, that was, you know, one of the weakest points of the show. So mm. 
I found there was a kind of gloss mm. Mm. over the whole thing that w maybe would relate to what John was saying about abjectness that made it very difficult to penetrate the work. Mm. Joan has identified Mario what for her was the weakest point of the show. Uh, could you tell us what was the strongest point of the show? Who picked the show? <laughs> well, um, I was going to mention this just at the end of our discussion, but actually it's a good point to mention and to thank, uh, very grateful of course to John Yao for coming back to the review panel, but uh, John agreed in the summer to be on the review panel uh, this evening, and as the more astute followers of the program will probably have noticed, initially um, uh, uh, Maureen Mullarkey was coming back for her second visit, um, but alas, for personal family reasons, had to duck out and was able to do so in time for me to invite and put Mario on the uh, panel in the ad. And alas, Andrea Scott, we wish her speedy recovery, has come down with a horrible throat infection and can uh, not speak, let alone go out and look at exhibitions. And very valiantly, at the 11th hour, Joan Waltermat <laughs> stepped into her shoes. And... Um, uh, Marlo Pasquale was a choice of one of the missing panelists. So <laughs> if she does not have a staunch and valiant defender on the panel, um, that uh, explains it. And I'm afraid um, it ain't me either. So let's, let's wish Marlo and her fans and her critical supporters uh, uh, the same godspeed as uh, uh, Maureen's son and Andrea's throat and move on to our next show. In fact, actually, as a kind of commercial break uh, from the two shows we've looked at so far and to give the panellists a moment just to catch their breath, uh, an audience member did ask me at the beginning, could I tell, uh, tell you all how the shows are chosen? Because it seems to be some hermetic Masonic mystery as to how of all the thousands, well, at least hundreds of eligible exhibitions out there, who is the uh, who is the grandmaster, the wizard, who chooses the four shows that we talk about? In fact, it's a very logical and um, a very logical and somewhat democratic process, and it's uh, very simple and easy to explain. I draw up um, a long list of eligible shows. To be eligible, you need to be a solo exhibition of a living artist showing a body of recent work. Uh, you also need to be an artist who has not been discussed yet at the review panel which is now on its uh, 30th installment, I think, so something like that. Do we know what number we're on, anybody? Somewhere up there. So, um, therefore, that narrows the field slightly, and I then send the long list to the panellists, the panellists being those who have agreed to be on the panel, which is, in fact, less of us than it may seem uh, this evening. And the panellists then, I say to the panellists, if there are choose half a dozen shows among this list that you feel you could really get behind, that you really have something to say about. And most people choose things that they have something positive to say about so that each show is going to have at least one person sticking up for it, even if the other three detest it. And um, then I sort of build up a pattern from those uh, shows listed and get a sense of uh, what would make a good balanced evening also in terms of medium the gender of the artists, um, the generation that the artists belong to. So we're not only looking at uh, you know, octogenarian white sculptors or something. And uh, we have um, a good spread 
of whatever it is we're looking at. So there you are. I hope that answers your question. It probably does so way more fully than you needed or wanted. Um, uh, a lady has a question. I'll take it. Yes. Yes. Uh, very easily. I have a, a numbered bank account in Zurich, and um, <laughs> if if you run a gallery, I'll I'll give you the number, and um, uh, we'll see what happens. No, I did agonise over that, and it it did seem to me possibly a, um, uh, something not to do. But on the other hand, uh, there just happened to be a show I really wanted to. Um, have discussed, which is a show we can discuss now, which is Susanna Phillips. Um, I've, I guess, set myself up to say why I wanted to discuss Susanna Phillips, uh, which is very simply because I find the paintings to be sumptuous and beautiful and at the same time intriguing and, um, and kind of odd in a good way. But, of course, um, odd in a good way has become one of the worst clichés in contemporary criticism. I and mean, who doesn't say things are odd in a good way? I mean, nobody's going to... That's why, of course, you know, Michelangelo is so much more popular than Raphael these days, because he's, he's very odd in a good way, and Raphael's just, Raphael's just good. And that's... Um, <laughs> that doesn't do it anymore, does it? I, I have a soft spot for quiet painting, because perhaps so much art out there... But then there are so many hundreds of shows to choose, to review, or buy from, or talk about, or go to, or whatever, need to make a lot of noise. There's something very um, humbling and enticing about the quietude of an artist whose motif seems to be within her domestic space, whose palette seems to veer from mm, cream to sludge, or cre cream to slate via sludge, it seemed to be much more about tone than colour itself, mm -hmm. um, whose shapes are reductive and yet suggestive, and um, who is inventive but in a very personal way that doesn't seem to um, burst out of what might seem um, a paradigm of painting that's maybe several decades old. Uh, or half a century old, the, the, the space, conceptual space in which the artist works is in many ways that of um, early modernism, um, but they don't seem to be anachronistic paintings. So that's my one-minute take on Susanna Phillips. Does it strike a chord with you, John, and does it accord with your own view? I had a f number of thoughts. One... I mean, I agree with the anachronistic, but one of the thoughts I had is uh, what would happen if you put her in a two-person show with a young artist who is getting a lot of attention and who, say, Jerry Saltz, the great speaker of all art critics, loves Josephine Halverson. What would happen if you put Susanna Phillips in a show with Josephine Halverson because I think it'd make us look at each one slightly differently. Okay. I think you're right about the... Describe a Halverson for us, just to refresh on our mind visually, those of us who are not as avid readers of Jerry Saltz as yourself. 
She paints uh, like a toy truck that seems to be from the 50s, quite uh, tonally, and it's kind of close-up view. Um, that be a good, my students really like her. So make them describe it. <laughs> They're always telling me what to look at, so I have mm. to dutifully go out there. Okay. Well, we won't ask them now. The ones pulling the scarves there, they had those are my students. Okay. So anyway, um, so that was one. I think uh, the, the paintings I liked the most are the ones where the space became and the and relationship between space and light was the most interesting. I thought others seemed to, like the figure, the artist painting the model, one I was really, I, I made me think of uh, Elmer Bischoff. I don't mm -hmm. know if you know these mm -hmm. amazing uh, works that Elmer Bischoff did while he was in the, uh, with Frank Lobdell and David Park and uh, Evencorn. And he often did these drawings and the space in those was always interesting. I mean, that seemed to be something Bischoff was really interested in. And I didn't feel like the space just seemed kind of flat and not quite interesting enough for me. I really like the what she can do with uh, uh, the one, the, there's one painting with a kind of rocking chair and profile. And, the, and uh, it's sort of, the longer I looked at the paintings, the more mournful they seemed. Mm -hmm. They seemed mournful mm -hmm. and stricken. And mm -hmm. that's sort of, that's not what you expect when you go to look at them and suddenly they seem mournful and stricken. I was like, something bad happened to this person or you know what mm. I, mean? I i didn't know where i got that thought from and mm. there were a couple of paintings the covered at night that uh james Com focused on well there seems something really yeah more melancholy from, yeah mm. and mm. melancholy and those are the ones that i like the most yes it's it struck me when i mentioned uh early modernism i you know thinking they like Matisse, that's been bleached of color, or or um, or early Gorky, when Gorky himself was going through an anachronistic phase of, uh, of serving his long apprenticeships to various uh, canonical moderns. It, it struck me that the 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 form um, it, it was that sort of early modernism, but the 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 color and the touch and the sensibility belonged to a sort of more romantic late 19th century. I was thinking of people like Carrière or English artists like Sickert and James Pride. Oh, Sickert, I thought of definitely. Yes, that making me think of tonalism as right. opposed to chromaticism. Yeah, I thought, you, I thought of her as a tonalist painter. Did you mm -hmm. get a, a mood from these paintings, Joan? Um, it was rather black. The mood was black? How about me, the aesthetic was, experience? Um, I, when I went into the gallery, I guess I had an anticipation that I would stand there for a little while and the paintings would really start opening up to me in a way that I could understand where they were coming from and that I could overcome that, what you're calling the anachronism, the 50s stylistic um, barrier that they pose. Um, but I, di I didn't really fa find that that happened to me. And I, I think that the looking at them as melancholy could be very instructive because melancholy is a kind of veil that's pulled over the soul and doesn't really allow you to see the light in the person. Hmm. 
And that, and that's how I felt about those paintings. Well, John and um, Joan uh, Mario were striking quite a somber tone by talking of the melancholy and the blackness. Um, my, my reaction is the opposite: uh, is that um, in fact these are um, uh, very colourful paintings, but that they arrive at their colour without colour. That right. they, um, uh, in fact, it's rather like either looking at uh, late Rothko paintings where you have to look for a long time, but then you do sense colour. Or it's like going into um, a medieval church where at first it seems incredibly dark, but when you let the work speak to you, the colour comes out. Mm-hmm. Did you have an experience closer to mine or closer to the, the melancholy blackness of that? I, I think I did, my experience was closer to yours. And I, I think the colour in the paintings, or what we think of as colourful, came more through the approach. Kind of the, what we're talking about, the early modernist or approach come, came through kind of the, the, the juicy paint handling and uh, kind of the brusque attack of, with the paintbrush. Um, I did like the palette, the kind of tonal, kind of grayed, kind of silvery tones that went on. Um, maybe they're a little pat. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of accepting of certain... Conventions. Conventions and and they're handsome conventions. They're nice to look at, but they're just somewhat pat. And and I actually did like the figure paintings the best of all because I felt like there was actually, um, particularly the one that was in James's um, video presentation, um, where she where the, the artist has to deal with the, the, oh, the yes. mass of the painter, the volume of the painter. The right. light is hitting the model in a certain way, and then suddenly and there's a dark figure to the side. Yes. Right, and and, mm. and suddenly the painting gains kind of more. Um, I don't know if it's narrative complexity. I didn't necessarily pick up on that, but kind of structural complexity that I thought some of the rest of the work was without. Mm. Mm. The patness, I guess, is what I was referring to when I mentioned the anachronism. In this, it, I didn't really want to... It's the word that's been picked up by everybody, but I, I, I just meant that she's working in a, in a different paradigm. Uh, she's, she's up in Montreal... Uh, not to denigrate Montreal's connection like to international <laughs> vanguardism, but uh, she she could be in Brooklyn. It doesn't matter. You can be isolated from mm-hmm. the current anywhere, and you can be with the current anywhere. So Montreal, of course, is neither here nor there. She's she's working against the grain. She's happy within this um, uh, paradigm, um, uh, which to some is a problem and to others isn't. I I mean, it's it's a challenge though to be inventive within yesterday's paradigm naturally. How about the objects that recur? I mean, we see the same guitar case in several uh, paintings, and we see um, a curious uh, sculptural form, which is actually identified in the title as being a Kalish, the work of uh, Howard Mm -hmm. Kalish, the the New York sculptor. Um, um, You know, within interiors, which are at the same time almost schematic, um, it it becomes, and when you have recurring motifs like that, it, it begins to be, you know, is it like Cezanne's apples? Are they just apples, or are they um, the fall? You know, what did you make of motifs in, in her work? I found that the most reassuring aspect of that work, and that that gives you the patience to keep looking at them, because you know you want to know why. How can she keep doing this over and over again? How how can she return to these same subjects? There has to be something in there for her. And so it makes you, it, makes, it made me curious, it made me want to go deeper into them and understand them more. Mm-hmm. Right. Great. Well, I think um, we've gone, we've, we've 
gone as far as we can into the black and the melancholy uh, and or the um, tonally subtle, depending on which um, half of the panel you agree with. You can be tonally subtle and somber. You can, you can, but um, you can be both. But We're talking Tim Burton e- gothic here. E- each of us chose a different light way in. So whether your way into the darkness is um, moral or, uh, uh, shall we say, um, or, or aesthetic, let's actually move on to somebody uh, who does not give us too much darkness, and that's Stanley Whitney, the last show of the evening. Um, Stanley Whitney at Team Gallery in Soho. Um, we've talked about Susanna Phillips' relation to art history. Um, Francis Bath's um, affinities have been mentioned to, to Diebenkorn, and at the same time, uh, her uh, the catalogue essay by Karen Wilkin makes bold claims for this being a new way to do abstraction in the 21st century. Um, Mario, do you have any historical sense of uh, Stanley Whitney? Does he seem a very contemporary artist doing something fresh and new? Does he seem somebody comfortably within the paradigm of modernist abstraction? You know, the thing about Stanley Whitney's paintings is another artist I've followed for quite some time. And I'm, I'm going to avoid your question, by the way. Please. Um, I, I want to like these paintings much more than I do. And I just, I just can't give myself over to them. Um, and there's, there's, there's so much going on in these paintings in terms of kind of the subtle color, kind of the, 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 kind of the, the direct approach. And I, I'm kind of at a loss to describe why I'm not head over heels in love with these things when I feel like I should be. I feel guilty for not liking these paintings. Mm. He did his job. <laughs> <laughs> you know what it strikes me? The odd thing about these paintings is the color, the color usage is really inventive and it, it sparkles. And, and that's not, there's no question about that. It's the structure of the things. They are mm. so inflexible. It's, it's, oh, yeah. If you've seen the paintings, there's these raisins. Well, we saw the paintings earlier. It, it's, it's almost a phenomenon. You don't go down the escalator, the, the little stair goes under and it goes over under, <laughs> underneath where we don't see it. It's all, the, all the paintings are like the bottom of the ex- escalator. As they get to the bottom of the canvas, they kind of get sucked in. And it's mm-hmm. so constant and it's so. You know, he paints them from top to bottom, right? There you go. Um, a vindicating tidbit of uh, studio it does. I didn't know that. Right? I didn't know that. But I, I just find that the, the overall structure of the painting is just so bullheaded in a way that I, I feel like they could, they could mm. be much richer experiences. And yet, um, you know, from Shakespeare's sonnet to Agnes Martin's stripes, a very rigid structure has, has never prevented great artists from being inventive. What do you make of the structure, uh, Joan? Well, I'm going to take you up on the historical question there. Yes. Um, we'll come back to structure, but let the history, good. Go for um, it. I was sitting there looking at them, and I had the sense of them not belonging to the modernist tradition. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I, kept, I was like, okay, why am, I, why am I getting this? Where is this coming from? And then I noticed right away that they were oil on linen, and I thought, well, linen, you know, to make those great big paintings in linen is a, is a certain way of distancing yourself from that um, cotton duck generation. Mm-hmm. So that seemed like a really important decision to me. And then as I sat there for a long time, 
I came to feel like they they gave me a glimpse of a time that would I in talking to the um, gallery assistant about them uh, decided to call the post anxiety age, mm-hmm. and I felt like they were they had. They had something about them that that gave me a glimpse of an of another time, and they they seemed so absolutely free of anxiety mm-hmm. that, and I think that's probably why you feel guilty for not liking them because mm-hmm. who couldn't like that? Free of anxiety, but does that make them hedonistic necessarily? Uh, no. No, not John. That structure that seems so mm-hmm. as you say rigid. Or mm-hmm. one one of the things that struck me about. Stanley's, well, one particular painting, I don't know if you all remember it, but you should call it Aegean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's got these three reds, it's four columns, and then there's these three reds, and then right to the left of it, it's blue, white, and blue. Isn't that like the colors of the Greek flag? And I kept thinking, uh, did he just make a pun? <laughs> like, did Stanley Whitney like make an abstract pun in this painting? And it's sort of made me think I had to go back and look at them, not because each one had one, but that they couldn't be read in the, in the way they seemed to invite being read, is that we look at it and we sort of get it. You know, it's a bunch of rectangles of color. Well, A, you can't scan them all at the same rate because some of them have layers of color and a certain kind of physical density that's never announced, but it's there. Then I thought, so you can't kind of look at them the way you look at a Rothko, where he's supposed to be like, I don't know, transported to another planet or whatever it is he's supposed to be. Anyway, I'm not being, I love Rothko, I'm not being Marxist. Use the mic. Uh, Oh, sorry, oh God. Hello. Um, The other thing I thought about them is that within their kind of uh, structure that they sort of deny a certain kind of reading because the smallest goes at the bottom. And it seems wrong-headed to do that. And that's mm-hmm. sort of you they're have like to They're like predellas, aren't they? Yeah, they're like predellas. And, but, and then I thought, you know, he's talked about color calling the color, but in a way you're like you keep reconfiguring the colors and the arrangements in your head and they keep you mm. active. And I, you know, like, mm. if something can keep you active, it's probably pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Because most stuff you look at and you go, I remember going to it, this is a long time ago, but I, I first got to New York in the 70s, and uh, uh, I went to a show at a, a gallery, I'm not going to say who it is, and a bunch of people came up in the elevator, and they got off the elevator. They obviously were going around, and they said, oh, that's a blah, 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 blah. That's a 70s abstract blah. You know, they just characterized it. They turned around, they all got in the elevator, and they left. And I was like, what did I not see, you know? Mm-hmm. But there's a kind of way that people can get to not to stop looking, mm-hmm. right? And I feel like there's a lot of art that it's easy to stop looking or you don't have to look at it. Mm-hmm. Do I have to see a guy masturbating inside a box because somehow this is something I really need to see? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I think maybe I don't have to see it. I've done it enough myself. I know what it looks like. <laughs> right? So there's certain kinds of things, and I feel like he gets you to keep looking, and you don't, 
It doesn't have a name. Hmm. It doesn't have a name, and yet I, I think, interestingly, the two questions that we've found ourselves asking in relation to Whitney, the question of structure and the question of where he is historically, uh, come together on this issue. Because, um, uh, in a way... Um, Yes, they're not Rothko. They're not even Ad Reinhardt. They have this rigid structure, but they do not. Uh, they're not painted in a, in such a way to me that um, actually invites um, a, a an all-in-one experience. Um, that they're 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 all in one in the way that a flag is, but um, they don't read um, uh, ideographically, and they don't. Um, work as one kind of field in which the, the different rectangles are really speaking to each other, it's, it's demanding of me that I look at it in a narrative way, in, the, in that I uh, uh, read it uh, left to right, top to bottom. Um, and uh, that puts me in mind, not because these other artists do exactly that, but the, the touch, the sensibility, the um, unexpress, unexpressiveness um, uh, and, and lack of... Uh, kind of uh, geometric or minimal rigor, puts me in mind of a lot of contemporary abstract artists, uh, whether it's uh, uh, Mary Heilman or uh, James Hyde. Um, uh, and um, so I wonder if, if that's, there's a certain attitude that comes across in these paintings. Yeah, I think he's in that. I think one of the things that strikes me about, say, abstraction like Barnett Newman and Ed Reinhardt is whether you know, we believe they were trying to make a big statement, mm-hmm. uh, but you don't feel like Mary Heilmer, uh, uh, Stanley Whitney are trying to make a big statement. But maybe, mm. you know, maybe big statements aren't really to be made at this point. I mean, well, big statements, no, but any statement is is a, state, is a different yeah, matter. Yeah, yes. and they, and they are make you know it's not art about art or all that stuff that mm-hmm. you know people theorize about that's so boring. Yes, um, but they are structures in which he can be present and play yes. with color yeah. and hopefully have us play some some game that's at least comparable. Is that right, Joan? I want to take issue with this idea of that they have a rigorous structure because I think that's really, um, you know, well, being, I, being someone who does work with rigorous structures. Okay. When I look at the, uh, at Stanley's paintings, I'm really taken by how he sets you up to assume that he's got this rigorous grid structure going on, but once the paintings start unfolding, you realize that everywhere he's subverting that that rigorous structure, and he's giving you the freedom to subvert the structures yourself as you look at his paintings, and I think there's something eminently satisfying about that. Yeah, I mean, he feels his way through the paintings, right? So in that way, the structure can't be that rigorous, because... It's done piece by piece rather than an external, this is where everything's going to go. But he, he usually arrives at uh, a familiar Stanley Whitney grid. Is that, not, is that a contentious statement? I would, no, I, would, no. I, would, I, would, I would agree with Joan that rigorous, I was clumsy in saying they're rigorous structure. I was diplomatically clumsy, perhaps. The truth is they have rigid structures. Um, but uh, they, they obviously they play with that rigid structure to be... To, to get to, for each 
each canvas to gain its but individuality. That's a pretty amazing thing to arrive at a Stanley Whitney grid. Yes, I all kudos you know, to him I for mean, having a Stanley Whitney grid. Artists dying to have something memorable like ah, but that's <laughs> that goes back. But doesn't that go back to the Rothko Newman generation rather than the the Heilman High generation? In that um, wanting to have um, that the structure be your thumbprint in art history, as it were, is... No, is, no, is, I think it's like 12-tone music meets jazz. It's like 12-tone music meets Ornette Coleman. That's how I look at those paintings. Well, it already did in Miles Davis, but uh, true. I don't but, think Stanley Whitney's going to be remembered for the structure of those paintings. I, I think he's going to be remembered for the experience of looking at them and the way that everything he does in those paintings subverts the structure. And one of the things that, just on a formal level, really intrigued me about them was I, when I was looking at them, I, I kept saying, everything is figure here. There's no figure-ground relationship mm-hmm. here. Everything is working at as as figure and figure ground relationship is something that comes out of the design element you know when you figure it out but as you're looking at the paintings he's able to force certain colors to become grounds in relationship to other colors and he starts moving these colors around by the nature of their relationships so as you as you go into those paintings the complexity of relationships between things unfolds in this myriad way and it's It's extraordinary. Can I say something nice about the paintings now? Please. Okay. (laughs) And maybe this is why I weaseled out of your previous question. And just hearing John and Joan talk about the work, unlike, say, the work of uh, Susanna Phillips, or most of the work of Susanna Phillips, or Marlo Pasquale, um, I I do think Stanley Whitney's paintings point forward. I I don't get the sense that they are conventional um, or, or that they're stuck. And perhaps that's why I just can't answer your question. Because I I don't see them, they seem too free in a way to be really codified. And so, if anything, I I just think they're very forward looking paintings. Um, Something has to do with the color and and the nature of how you register all these blocks of color and and how that affects your eye and how you read the paintings. But how do you read the paintings? Do you read them as, as one unified, vibrating? sort of essence, or do you read it as something that's a field in which you have to build up uh, relationships of your own between these figures? I, I, it's, it's like watching ping pong. It's mm-hmm. literally my eye is, 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 is shifting. It usually has to do with the, the, kind of the intensity and saturation of the colors and, and, how, the, and how the brush strokes affect each of the, uh, you know, the units. Um, so I, I don't get that all over thing, and I don't get you know the, the kind of a stable structure. But I, I do like the way my eye kind of bounces off. It's like an eye is a ping pong ball, and it's bouncing back and forth, you know, trying to divine a connection of some sort. Yeah, I mean they're a pleasure to look at, but in a, on another level you can't see them. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's, that's a exactly right. Kind of yeah. place to be, right? You can't really take it all in because you keep moving around, or your eye keeps moving around, or you kind of focus in. Mm-hmm. and then move back out. See, it's on one hand, it's a pleasure, but on another hand, it's not like, well, I'll just stand here and look at it. It's like fairly active relationship you mm-hmm. have with it. And I think I almost that's had the, pretty interesting. I almost had the feeling like I couldn't leave because I could never grasp it. It just kept moving the whole time. But I was thinking it would be very interesting well, to look at like those... that's like someone's face, right? Yeah, it's You a don't lie. really ever grasp someone's face. You... I always reduce it to a bunch of lines 
or however and remember it, but you don't really, according to Levina, you know, it's always the face that you're looking at that you keep having the exchange and the acknowledgement of difference with. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. in that sense, you could say, just to throw this back into the conversation, he's making ethical abstractions. Okay, ethical abstractions, and then taking issue with me for talking about uh, rigorous structures, begs this question. Uh, does he have uh, a consistent aesthetic criteria that would have him determine that each painting is uh, a success, uh, or do we sense that uh, the, the rules are rewritten in each painting? That's a really interesting I question. I think the rules are rewritten. Yeah? Did you get very different kinds of... Did you find different games were being played with your uh, aesthetic sensibility from one canvas to the other? Well, I have to now confess that I own a little tiny painting of this. <laughs> <laughs> Am I allowed to do that, or is that held against me? No, you're allowed to do that, but you have to put your insurance premium up 10% because okay. this discussion has now increased its value. But that's There's, fine. Carry on. It's a painting that uh, uh, the, the color, uh, it's great. It's like this. He's never used that palette before. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he's, and it's, it's purple, green, and white, among other things. And he came out of, I wouldn't have known this, but those are the colors like of the New Orleans Saints, I think. <laughs> and it was done after Katrina, so you had this funny pop aspect to, to and cultural thing. And anyway, I really liked the painting, and Stanley gave it to me. He probably wanted to rip it up, but anyway, I have it. So, but it makes me think the cha rules change because he has something going on in his head. Mm -hmm. There's some, you know, he says he's not a storyteller. But he has something going on his, in his head that makes him start where he starts and gets to where he gets to. And I think that changes from painting to painting. Well, I, I certainly feel from this discussion that uh, the Whitney show is something I need to go back and uh, look at more closely. And I hope the audience has had, uh, some of the audience has had a similar sensation with at least one or two of the shows we've talked about. So, panel, thank you very much indeed. And it's a good moment before we take comments from the audience, just to remind you of uh, next, um, next month's uh, panel discussion, which Carly, Berwick, Michelle Cohn, and uh, Joachim Pizarro are going to join me. And we have, in fact, chosen our exhibitions, and to my deep shame and self-disgust, I didn't write the list down, and I don't remember what we chose. Um, Linda... Do you, uh, do you have the names? Do you have any, do either, any of the staff have that? Okay, you go to artcritical.com uh, as soon as you get home. Or rather, you go to artcritical.com first thing tomorrow morning, by which time I will have put up the flyer that tells us what we're talking about next month. Oh, yes, Tino Sengal at the Guggenheim and Damien Hurst at Gagosian, two uptown galleries. Those are two of the shows that we're uh, talking about. I seem to think that one of the third show was in the uptown area as well. Oh, yes, Yvonne Jaquette at the DC Moore Gallery. And uh, now we're going to do a terrible injustice to the fourth show. Uh, but I think the fourth show was in Chelsea. Um, Damien Hurst? Yvonne Jaquette was our token painter. So I think... Um, 
Okay, well, I, we've done pretty well, my girlfriend and I, between us. Uh, reassembling, in our mind's eye, three of the four shows that we're talking about next month. Uh, yes. And perhaps, while the audience is sharing their thoughts on this evening's uh, shows, the fourth show will pop into one of our minds. Um, anyhow, let's do this in a, in a semi-structured way uh, by, first of all, asking, does anyone have any comments either on Francis Barth or Marlo Pasquale to share with us? That uh, we will... Is there a roving mic? Is there a roving mic? Yes, there is. Marvellous. And uh, David Brody, who is a former review panellist and I believe a co-exhibitor with Francis Bath, might share a thought with us. Yes, I did co-exhibit in a show curated by Marnette Larson over here. Um, I, I just, David. Sorry. I just wanted to say I thought that the panel did a, an intelligent and sensitive job of talking about uh, you know, some very intelligent and sensitive painting. Uh, one thing I wanted to, to add or maybe just think about is uh, there's a couple of paintings that I thought directly referred among you know, all the stuff that gets pulled in geology and other kinds of spaces to uh, uh, Japanese rock gardens, Zen gardens. One's called Kyoto, another one sort of has a little uh, rock-like protuberance in, a, in a, what looks like a raked field. Uh, the panel brought in references to calligraphy and, and the scroll shapes of canvases. But just the, the, the word Zen struck me because uh, I think uh, Peter Sheldahl used it to um, talk about the primary atmosphere show at Zwerner. There's a West Coast Zen kind of thing. And it strikes me that, that Francis Barth's work is, is a reaction in a way to the sort of the end game that, uh, that happens, the vector that happens in that show, powerful as it is, uh, you know, looking at that show, I see I see Terrell being Terrell and McCracken sort of being the promised land that Judd and uh, Irwin are just pointing to, and you know where do you go beyond that? And I feel like to use Zen to describe that kind of American transcendentalist vector, uh, you know, maybe that's one kind of Zen. But the kind of work that Francis Barth makes is another kind that may be more true to the actual practice of Zen as I understand it, which is more about the everyday and the quotidian and the, and the found uh, thing in front of your face. So uh, that, I think that work does come out of, uh, Frank Sparth's work does come out of reaction to sort of that end game of the 60s and 70s. That's it. Oh, one other comment, if I could, just since I have the mic about uh, the, the structure of Stanley uh, Whitney's paintings is maybe one kind of interesting uh, comparison could be made to Adolf Gottlieb's early sort of pictographic mm -hmm. structures. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure where that leads to, but it just occurred to me. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, well, following David Brody's precedent, let's just open it up to, to all four artists. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's great also when, when there's a possibility to um, bounce the same idea between two of the shows we've been talking about. So uh, any comments uh, from the audience on, on any of the shows that we've, we've looked at this evening? Uh, I can't believe it. <laughs> this panel did such a sensitive and thorough and deep <laughs> job of uh, reviewing these these yeah. artists. In relation to Susanna Phillips, for instance, there was a little debate going back and forth here about um, her being, as I put it, in a in a in 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 an older paradigm, or being, as Mario put it, Pat, whereas. Um, 
we all responded. Also, we also there was a little bit of contention, wasn't there, between uh, what the darkness and Susanna Phillips um, may or may not signify, whether it's whether it's a painterly thing purely or whether it veers more towards psychological significance. Any thoughts on either of those two topics? Yes. I, I saw. I saw her show, and I actually thought it might relate a bit to Mirandi. Mm, you know, definitely. there was a sense of like holding the object and then trying to place it in space and set up some sort of of um, relationship between those things, and I found that interesting. But I was really, I had a hard time getting past the frames. Every single piece had this little strip of wood around it, and it just felt like it was put on after the piece was made. It didn't have anything to do with the piece. And I just felt like really contained by that. And I don't know, I just found it getting in my way a lot. Um, and I think if, if there's some other choice had been made, it might have opened the pieces up a little bit more. Right, the frame. Yes, Christina. Thanks. Um, this isn't a terribly well-formed thought, but I just thought the most striking comment about her paintings was, uh, you know, that something very bad must have happened at some point. Um, I mean, that I have no idea about, but I do think it speaks to a kind of, um, you know, extremely raw emotion in some paintings that, you know, might be tonal, might be, you know, have a lot of gray in them, a lot of color, whether, you know, they have those things but that they have a very clear emotional quality that I'm not sure any of the other shows you talked about tonight had. And I'm just throwing it out there, but it, it raises the question a little bit of, um, you know, whether the more known elements of the paintings, you know, we, we know a little bit about what a, a formalist still life looks like, or, you know, these are things we know a bit. And, and given that we know it, maybe we can experience the emotion a little bit um, more clearly. There's a bit more clarity to the feeling of it. Um, just reminded me a little bit of the, uh, just when you made that comment, it made me think of the Dylan line, you know, that you need to know your song well before you start singing. And it just seems that she knows her song and that there's, there's something very beautiful in that. And it made me uh, think sometimes maybe to know some of the elements beforehand is not a bad thing. Great. Well, I'm afraid the fourth um, show for next month has not sprung into my mind, probably because <laughs> I can't David, believe it, David Brody and Christina Key were shedding, and, and our other commenter from the floor was adding and augmenting the panel's rich insights. So, ladies and gentlemen, enjoy this um, evening. Go for a long stroll in this warm evening air. Goodbye. <laughs> Uh, we could rectify that. We can get. We can find something for you. Yes. We could.